From PQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. I'm Taya Abrecht, author of The Tiger's Wife. This is my first novel, and it's about a young doctor named Natalia in an unnamed province of the Balkans, who, while on a mission of mercy, learns that her beloved grandfather has died and tries to interpret the meaning behind his death through the stories that he told her. What I'm about to read is one of those stories. Having sifted through everything I now know about the tiger's wife, I can tell you that this much is fact. In 1941, in late spring, without declaration or warning, German bombs started falling on the city and did not stop for three days. The tiger did not know that they were bombs. He did not know anything beyond the hiss and screech of the fighters passing overhead, missiles falling, the sound of bears bellowing in another part of the fortress, the sudden silence of birds. There was smoke and terrible warmth, a gray sun rising and falling in what seemed like a matter of minutes, and the tiger, frenzied, dry-tongued, ran back and forth across the span of rusted bars, lowing like an ox. He was alone and hungry, and that hunger, coupled with the thunderous noise of bombardment, had burned in him a kind of awareness of his own death, an imminent and innate knowledge he could neither dismiss nor succumb to. He did not know what to do with it. His water had dried up, and he rolled and rolled in the stone bed of his trough, in the uneaten bones lying in a corner of the cage, making that long, sad sound that tigers make. After two days of pacing, his legs gave out, and he was reduced to a contraction of limbs lying in his own waist. He had lost the ability to move, to produce sound, to react in any way. When a stray bomb hit the south wall of the citadel, sending up a choking cloud of smoke and ash and shattering bits of rubble into the skin of his head and flank, bits that would gnaw at his flesh for weeks until he got used to the grainy ache of them when he rolled onto his side or scratched himself against trees, his heart should have stopped. The iridescent air and the feeling of his fur folding back like paper in the heat, and then the long hours during which he crouched at the back of his pen, watching the ruptured flank of the citadel wall. All of these things should have killed him. But something... Some flickering of the blood forced him to his feet and through the gap in the wall. He was not the only one. Years later, they would write about wolves running down the street, a polar bear standing in the river. They would write about how flights of parrots were seen for weeks above the city, how a prominent engineer and his family lived an entire month off a zebra carcass. The tiger's route through the city that night took him north to the waterfront behind the citadel where the remains of the merchant's port and Jewish quarter spread in flattened piles of brick down the bank and into the waters of the Danube. The river was lit by fires, and those who had gone into it were washing back against the bank where the tiger stood. He considered the possibility of swimming across, and under optimal circumstances he might have attempted it, but the smell rising off the bodies turned the tiger around, sent him back past the Citadel Hill and into the ruined city. People must have seen him, but in the wake of bombardment he was anything but a tiger to them. A joke, an insanity, a religious hallucination. He drifted enormous and silent down the alleys of Old Town, past the smashed-in doors of coffee houses and bakeries, past motor cars flung through shop windows. He went down the tramway, 
up and over fallen trolleys in his path beneath the lines of electric cable that ran through the city and now hung broken and black as jungle creeper. By the time he reached Knez Petrova, looters were already swarming the boulevard. Men were walking by him, past him, alongside, men with fur coats and bags of flour, with sacks of sugar and ceiling fixtures, with faucets, tables, chair legs, upholstery ripped from the walls of ancient Turkish houses that had fallen in the raid. He ignored them all. Some hours before sunrise, the tiger found himself in the abandoned market at Kalinia, two blocks up from where my grandfather and my grandma would buy their first apartment fifteen years later. Here the scent of death that clung to the wind drifting in from the north separated from the pools of rich stench that ran between the cobbles of the market square. He walked with his head down, savoring the spectrum of unrecognizable aromas. Splattered tomatoes and spinach that stuck to the grooves in the road, broken eggs, bits of fish, the clotted, fat leavings on the sides of the butcher's stands, the thick smell smeared around the cheese counter. His thirst insane, the tiger lapped up pools from the leaky fountain where the flower women filled their buckets, and then put his nose into the face of a sleeping child who had been left, wrapped in blankets under the pancake stand. Finally, up through the sleepless neighborhoods of the lower city, with the sound of the second river in his ears, the tiger began to climb the trail into the king's forest. I like to think that he went along our old carriage trail. I like to imagine his big cat paw prints in the gravel, his exhausted, square-shouldered walk along my childhood paths, years before I was even born. But in reality, the way through the undergrowth was faster, the moss easier on paws he had shredded on city rubble. The cooling feel of the trees bending down to him as he pushed up the hill, until at last he reached the top, the burning city far behind him. The tiger spent the rest of the night in the graveyard and left the city at dawn. He did not go by unobserved. He was seen first by the gravedigger, a man who was almost blind and who did not trust his eyes to tell him that a tiger, braced on its hind legs, was rummaging through the churchyard garbage heap, mouthing thistles in the early morning sunlight. He was seen next by a small girl riding in the back of her family's wagon, who noticed him between the trees and thought he was a dream. He was noticed, too, by the city's tank commander, who would go on to shoot himself three days later, and who mentioned the tiger in his last letter to his betrothed. I have never seen so strange a thing as a tiger in a wheat field, he wrote, even though today I pulled a woman's black breasts and stomach out of the pond at the convent of Sveta Maria. The last person to see the tiger was a farmer on a small plot of land two miles south of the city who was burying his son in the garden and who threw rocks when the tiger got too close. The tiger had no destination, only the constant tug of self-preservation in the pit of his stomach, some vague, inborn sense of what he was looking for which carried him onward. For days then weeks there were long, parched fields and stretches of marshland clogged with the dead. Bodies lay in piles by the roadside and hung like pods, split open and drying from the branches of trees. The tiger waited below for them to fall, then scavenged them until he got mange, lost two teeth, and moved on. He followed the river upstream through the flooded bowl of the foothills swollen with April rain, sleeping in empty riverboats while the sun, pale in the blue mist of the river, grew dimmer. 
He skirted human habitations, small farms where the sound of cattle drew him out of the bracken, but the openness of the sky and the prospect of human noise terrified him, and he did not stay long. At some bend in the river he came across an abandoned church, half a bell tower overgrown with ivy, crowded with the hushed shuffling of pigeons. It kept the rain off him for a few weeks, but there was no food for him there, all the corpses in the churchyard having decomposed long ago, nothing for him but the eggs of water birds and the occasional beached catfish, and eventually he moved on. By early autumn he had spent four months in the swamps, gnawing on decaying carcasses that drifted by, snatching frogs and salamanders along the creek bed. He had become a host for leeches, and dozens of them stood like eyes in the fur of his legs and sides. One morning, in the grip of an early frost, he came across a boar. Brown and bloated, the hog was distracted with acorns, and for the first time in his life the tiger gave chase. It was loud and poorly calculated. He came on with his head up and his breath blaring like a foghorn, and the hog, without even turning to look at its pursuer, disappeared into the autumn brush. The tiger did not succeed, but it was something at least. He had been born in a box of hay in a gypsy circus, and had spent his life feeding on fat white columns of spine in the citadel cage. For the first time, the impulse that made him flex his claws in sleep, the compulsion that led him to drag his meat to the corner of the cage he occupied alone, was articulated into something other than frustration. Necessity drew him slowly out of his domesticated clumsiness. It strengthened and reinforced the building blocks of his nature, honed his languid feline reflexes, and the long-lost Siberian instinct pulled him north into the cold. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.